Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show... I speak to the billionaire investor and philanthropist Stephen Schwarzman about his massive donation to Oxford University, where part of it will be for a new institute for ethics in artificial intelligence. These people are uniquely positioned to help think through some of the core values of Western civilization. And relatedly, what can be done to create more trust around AI? And a lot of people are focused on robots that will upend the workforce and murder us in our sleep. And I would argue that the concern has more to do with a longer term outlook on what our geopolitics look like than what we've seen in popular culture. But first, Facebook has announced plans to launch its very own global digital currency called Libra next year. It hopes users will be able to download a digital wallet that'll let them send money to anybody anywhere in the world via apps like WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. The company follows other tech giants into the payment sector, after Google Pay, Apple Pay, and WeChat Pay. But Facebook, unlike those other companies, is using cryptocurrency technology. So what is the potential of Libra, and what are the concerns over this new venture? Ludwig Siegel is The Economist's U.S. technology editor. He joins me down the line from San Francisco. Hello, Ludwig. Hello, Ken. How are you? I'm great. So first, why is it called Libra? It is called Libra because that's a, uh, an old Roman weight, Libra, and it also kind of, it's a word for pound. So think about it as money, weight and money. Also, it's Libra, it's liberation. The idea is here, Facebook is liberating the financial system. So why has Facebook chosen a currency as its next venture to go into as a social media site? There's plenty of reasons for that. I mean, the way they frame it or they say what the mission is here is to help the unbanked, to help people send money across borders without having to pay lots of fees. I think it costs 7% on average to send like $200 from, let's say, London to India. So that's one reason, kind of help the unbanked, help the world make a better place. But of course, Facebook is in the market for making money. It's a listed company, so they also want to improve their, their business. And one thing is to catch up with apps or services like WeChat. WeChat is a super app in China. They already have a ubiquitous payment system. That's one thing. And, and WeChat also, probably if they, they're allowed to, they would like to enter the Western markets and compete with Facebook. 
But indirectly, what Libra does for Facebook, it, it makes a number of things easier or more valuable. For example, advertising. So we, we all know Facebook has a lot of advertising, but with Libra, people could then directly click on an ad and buy something. Or they could use Libra to uh, uh, tip uh, creators on Instagram or Facebook. Maybe it's useful to explain how Libra will work technically. The way you have to think about it is that it's basically a database. So uh, the blockchain is a big, big database that contains the history of all transactions in a cryptocurrency. And so you can always know who owns what. And so think about it as kind of like the internet. So or the, all the web pages taken together. And then you have a browser to look at those. And uh, the browser, in the case of the blockchain, is called a wallet. And so Facebook will uh, or has already created a, a separate subsidiary, Calibra, from uh, yeah, Libra and Calibra. And that is kind of Facebook's web browser, or, uh, Facebook's wallet. And you will, will then use that software, which will be integrated in Messenger or in uh, Instagram or in WhatsApp, to see what you owe in, in Libra. Yeah, so it looks at the blockchain and sees how much you owe. And then you can send that money to, any, to people who ha also have a Libra wallet. Now, Facebook has some problems in the world of privacy. People don't trust it. Why should we trust it with Libra? They're a good point, and they admit as much, uh, finally. So what they have done, or at least what they say they will do, is that this wallet I just talked about, this Calibra company, is a separate subsidiary. So that means that Facebook wants to keep the databases of Calibra, I mean, knowing who owns what money, separate from uh, the Facebook database. So they want to keep the social and the financial data separate. Now, as with all these things, the devil is in the detail, and it's not clear to me what actually that will entail. So, for example, if you sign up for uh, Calibra or any other Libra wallet, they will have to check or Calibra checks your identity. So you have to show them your ID, your photo ID. And so they can establish your identity. And so if Calibra is uh, successful, they'll have a long, long list of verified identities. And that's very useful for Facebook, or could be very useful for Facebook to uh, strengthen the identities they've collected for Facebook, the social network, or WhatsApp for that matter. And so it was not clear to me whether they, for example, will allow to sync uh, at least the identity of people. The fact that they have identified this person is a real person and link that to the profile in Facebook. We'll see about that. And that's a very important thing to scrutinize once, once the thing is up and running, that they really sticks to that promise to keep the financial and the social data separate. Ludwig, my final question. Will you be using it? I will be using it just because that's my job to use it. Will I use it a lot? I don't think so. I mean, I, I have a Facebook account and I don't use Facebook a lot. Ludwig, thank you. Thanks, Ken. Bye-bye. And you could read more about Libra in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And if you like our journalism, subscribe. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
Next up, Stephen Schwarzman is the co-founder and chief executive of the massive private equity firm Blackstone. And he's donating 150 million pounds to Oxford University to set up a new faculty for the humanities. It will also house a new Institute for Ethics in Artificial Intelligence to, quote, explore crucial questions affecting the workplace and society, end quote. Stephen Schwarzman, welcome to Babbage. Hello. What concerns you about AI that makes you feel like it's so important to actually have its own center? I spend a lot of time in China, and I've seen the development of AI there. And it became clear that the Western world was falling behind China in terms of the development of these powerful technologies. And so I thought it was important to put a boost into the U.S. system, and I gave a very large donation to MIT because everybody I was meeting believed that we had to control these powerful new technologies, which could do remarkable things. But on the negative side, could result in significant unemployment and challenge for democracies. And so part of my donation at MIT was because of the need to stand up Western capabilities on science, but also importantly, in the ethics area. You've given a lot of money recently to Oxford University, in large part for AI ethics. Why Oxford? So when I was approached by Louise Richardson, who was the head of Oxford, at the end of 2017, I found out that Oxford is ranked number one in the world in humanities and number one in the world in philosophy. And I started thinking about the human future and the technology world. And I said, you know, these people are uniquely positioned to help think through some of the core values of Western civilization and bring them to the discussion about the trade-offs of the new technologies. And so we've done something in three pieces, if you will. The first is getting all of the humanities faculties together at one building. Second, we're going to have a major performing arts center. And the reason for that is to take some of the ideas and be able to play them out, sort of more or less like little festivals. And the third thing that I said, we need an AI ethics component using the humanities people to serve as an interface with government, potential regulators, and the media to understand what needs to be done in terms of the right regulatory environment and culture so that we don't lose control. You know, I had somebody visit me about a month ago, you know, who's a famous person in the artificial intelligence area, and he said he had a commercial idea where he could reduce the workforce in our HR department and accounting by 30 to 40 percent, and that he could do that for almost any company, and this will probably be rolled out within the next five years. And at Blackstone, we have about 200 companies. And you start thinking about the number of people who are going to be unemployed by this one man wandering around just trying to get some business. So why didn't you take him up on his offer? The reason I'm interested in this AI ethics area, which is what you asked me about, is if I take him up on his offer and everybody takes him up on his offer, what's going to happen in these parts of an organization? There are going to be many people who will end up displaced. There are huge numbers of people in China developing this, and this trend is going to 
accelerate in the West. It makes me feel like maybe you've misplaced your donation. To get a bunch of humanities people together to talk about AI ethics gets you only so far. You're an alumnus of Harvard Business School. You should have given it to Harvard and had all the business people in the MBAs think about these ethical decisions. You have to start this conversation with the issue of what is humanness. We now are starting to have AI that's replicating paintings, and you're going to have the same thing with music. There are going to be functions which humans used to do, where they will now be either complemented or competing with machines. And so how you mix that when you're talking about restraining progress makes this an important issue. You need a variety of strainers to go through to figure out what the right answer is, and one of it is Western values. Many of your philanthropic activities, they're focused often on people and this institute and the focus on AI ethics is a new way of doing that, finding a way for the West to compete with China in AI, not through the algorithm, but through the ethics. Yeah, but interestingly, I'm involved with a program called the Schwarzman Scholars. We take superstar students from around the world to China. So I deal with the head of Chenhua University, it's called. And as soon as my announcement with MIT, you know, he called me up. He said, Steve, we have to do something in the ethics area. Because if you're Chinese, they love new technologies. You know, just about the worst thing that could happen in China is large-scale unemployment. Because if you could imagine the dislocation I was just describing to you with 30 to 40% people in areas disappearing, this is like really frightening to any government and any social system. Is that something that you feel that you need to sort of put forward in your values to say, hey, wait, rethink this? I think with China, they're not driven by Western values. And you know, there have been many times in history where, quote, Western values weren't prevailing. And this is one of them. There is an issue that I am absolutely captivatedly interested about. How does someone ask someone else for $150 million or for $350 million? How is it that Oxford and MIT have done something right where others, it falls Somebody has to be talking about something that interests you. And so what tends to happen is I don't try and give away a lot of money. I don't wake up in the morning and say, how much money can I give away? I'm in the money-making business for our customers at work. And what happens is when they do well, I do well. And I'm more concerned about what we're doing for our clients. But I respond to a situation where we're making something much better for people or protecting the system that we're in that many people think does not warrant any protection. I tend to like to do something if I think it can be impactful. And so the amount of money is just an artifact of the goodness of the idea. Steve Schwartzman, thank you very much. Well, it was really a pleasure to be here today. Finally, Stephen Schwarzman is just one of many people thinking about the implications and ethics of artificial intelligence. Amy Webb from the Future Today Institute has written a book called The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. She's interested in the rules that companies like Facebook, Alibaba, Baidu, and Google and others need to put in place to raise consumer trust in AI. Because Amy has such a dyspeptic view as well as an inspiring one, I started by asking her how nervous or scared we should be that there's going to be nine big players. I do think that 
some skepticism and concern is certainly warranted as long as we're placing our fears into the right bucket. When it comes to AI, there's quite a bit of anxiety right now. And my concern is that it's somewhat misguided. So a lot of people are focused on walking, talking robots and robots that will upend the workforce and murder us in our sleep. There is plenty to be concerned about. And I would argue that the concern has more to do with economics and a a longer term outlook on what our geopolitics look like than what we've seen in popular culture. So between America and China, who do you think is going to win? And what does winning look like? Winning is a complicated term because I don't think that this is necessarily a zero-sum game. If the big nine win, then in many ways, consumers lose. And if the three companies that are based in China, who I believe are in lockstep, China's outlook for a new world order, one in which it is able to command a tremendous amount of people and capital and huge parts of the world, then I think democracy loses. So here's, I think, the better way to think about it. At the moment, AI is on two different developmental tracks, one which prioritizes speed over safety in a free market economy where delivering products is paramount and where risk modeling and the negative downstream implications of a lot of this stuff is being left off the table because it would slow progress. In China, AI is part of a government structure and a core focus of some people who currently are in power and are very, very smart and are using it as not only a form of social control, but as a way to bridge China and China's economy with developing economies around the world. And in the process of doing this, there are huge concessions being made in terms of personal liberty and privacy and certain economic and other kinds of freedoms. So taken to an extreme, neither one of those outcomes or developmental tracks is a good one. So what do you think the rules should be? Is there any one key or or two key principles or rules that would allow us to put AI on a firmer footing in society that we could all try to buy in on? Right. So this is where things get very, very complicated because our human DNA is already a part of these systems and there is no off switch, which tells us that you know simple regulations or the regulatory frameworks that we've always had in our own countries really don't apply going forward because this is a technology that is going to be in some form of development now for the next seven or eight decades. So to try to regulate this as it's still a moving target means either that the regulation is outdated by the time it gets passed, or there's no real way to enforce it in any way that's meaningful. So I'm thinking that regulation as we've always known it is probably not the right way forward. But individual guardrails or statements on ethics or anything else like that without any central coordination is also not smart. Because as it stands, we have individual cities now around the world with their own policies on what AI should look like and do. Canada has a statement on ethics. Different groups that are, you know, activist groups have their own statements. There's a brand new policy center at Stanford that's making recommendations. There's one in Georgetown that's making recommendations. You know, Amy, I've got to say, hearing you describe all of the things and institutions and ways with which people try to make regulations, but the difficulty of it, it doesn't make me feel very optimistic. In fact, I feel very pessimistic that we don't have a sense of one or two or three core principles or rules that would allow us to put AI on firm footing. 
We don't currently, which is why I'm advocating for the start of a new international organization that I call GAIA, the Global Alliance on Intelligence Augmentation. What I would like to see happen is the formation of a new body that is policymakers and government leaders and smart thinkers and people from the AI community and academics and people trained in planning to all come together uh, because this is not a a single use case. This is going to be ongoing work with lots of different things that have to be done, you know, over the next 50 to 70 years. And until we have some kind of coordination where we've brought everybody to the table and there are incentives to be had, we're basically just spinning our wheels while China races ahead. And that is a catastrophic outcome that is currently avoidable, but one without further action into which I think we are currently headed. Amy, thank you very much. Thanks. And that's all for this week's Babbage. If you like the show, rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.